Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. Great to be together. And we're kind of scattering here and there throughout the summer, here, there, and everywhere. And it's awesome to come back together uh, throughout the summer and uh, kind of recalibrate, refocus, worship together, connect, hang out, talk in the lobby afterwards and beforehand too. And and now to spend some time in God's Word as well, and uh, great to be together. I want to welcome each of you here in person, and also those of you watching online. Our live stream continues to go strong, and we're so glad for that. Glad you're hanging out with us uh, this morning. And also YouTube later on, if you're watching via YouTube, still a very significant group of people watching at their convenience during the rest of the week. If they're not able to get here, glad you're with us as well. And uh, I just love, uh, love being together, and it's great to see you. Well, I don't know, uh, this week, uh, did you get any hail at your house? Because uh, I got a lot of hail, like nickel-sized hail coming down out of the sky at my house. And I work at home, uh, you know, pretty frequently during the week. I work here, but also at home. And I was home, and, uh, and it was very weird because it was really sunny, and then it was cloudy, and then it was like this raging hailstorm, and I was like, what? What is going on? And I went into uh, my backyard. We have a back porch, and we have a metal roof over it, and man, it was so loud. You couldn't even hear anybody talking. You couldn't even hear yourself think it was so loud, and I was looking out into the backyard, and the hail was actually bouncing off the lawn and bouncing up like a foot above the lawn. I'm like, this is incredible. Um, leaves were coming off the trees, and... I have tomato plants, and one of the, the little tiny cherry, tiny cherry tomatoes that I've been watching carefully, because it's the first one to get ripe, like got knocked down by a piece of hail, and it's laying on the ground. I'm like, man, uh, what's going on here? I mean, I kind of hope that, that maybe the hail would wipe out some of the bunnies in the area, uh, because, you know, as you know, I've been talking about the rabbits getting in my yard and stuff, and, and Denise wasn't really happy with that idea at all. Uh, she also wasn't happy when I told her that I wanted to actually go outside during the hail storm to see what it felt like, because I can't even remember. Like, I'm just going to run around, I guess, in the hail, and uh, it means coming down from a thousand feet. I don't know what that feels like, but uh, she thought that was a really bad idea, too. Now, my neighbor, young guy, two doors down from me, he had the same idea as me. I thought that was pretty cool, and he decided he was going to go outside during one of the intense moments of hell, and he went outside, and I watched him because I was curious. He put his hands on his head, and he went out in the yard, and he turned around really quickly and just went right back in the house super quick, and I'm like, man, the guy couldn't even last. Guy couldn't even last. But a few minutes later, he came out with a helmet. And I was like, this guy is undeterred. I mean, he's, he's, going, he's going for it. So I was, I was very impressed with that. But, you know, as we think about life, life can be like that, where one moment it's sunny, and then it's cloudy, and then it's like this raging hailstorm, and we're getting pelted by something, and <laughs> kind of bruised by life. And I think what we've seen in this series on Juicy Fruit is that God actually wants to develop something within us, give us an inner stability, give us an inner strength, and in fact, an inner fruitfulness that enables us to navigate whatever weather conditions we face in this life, whatever circumstances come our way that, with, way that we have this ability to stand strong and remain fruitful and ultimately to thrive 
through the good, the bad, and sometimes the ugly of life. And we've been looking at these fruits in particular, the fruit of the Spirit and its expressions, and we find those in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 22 through 25. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Here we have a God explaining to us and, and detailing for us how these fruit, this fruit and the expressions of this fruit are evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, evidence that the Holy Spirit resides within us, that we develop greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And today I want to look at goodness, that God wants to develop goodness within our hearts and our minds and our spirits. And this word is uh, very uh, broad in the New Testament. It's the word agathos. It's for good. And uh, at first blush, as we're looking at it initially, we might think that this is somewhat synonymous with kindness, uh, what we've learned about already on kindness. But we look at it, maybe it's kindness, or maybe it's uh, being a moral person, or being good, doing good things for other people. But this word is actually more nuanced than that. Uh, the expression, the use of this word is, is very rare in the New Testament. It's only used four times and it speaks of something very distinct and very specific. Goodness here, the goodness God wants to develop in your life, is actually generosity. It's generosity. It's best understood in this way, and, and it's way harder to cultivate than we might imagine. It's something that takes energy. It takes focus. It's radically countercultural. It's radically life-changing. So I want to look today at this idea of generosity. And the first place I want to look is in something Paul says that is kind of like a curveball. He says something that um, in the context of another conversation that really helps us get at this concept of goodness. We find this in Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. Paul says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were si still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, before I unpack this a little bit, I just want to give you a heads up. I will need, in a few minutes, a volunteer. Okay, I didn't give, I didn't give the, fir the first service enough heads up for the bolder people. I need a volunteer who will come up on stage and illustrate something with me, and I promise it won't be, it, it, of course it's going to be weird. It's church. It has to be weird, but I think it'll be helpful if you would like to do that. So just as a heads up for those who might want to do that. But here in this context, Paul is talking about the supremacy of Jesus' love for us. That even though all of us have rejected him, we've turned from him, we've spit in his face, we've turned our back on him, we've balled our fists up and said, God, I don't need you. God's love is tenacious, it's persistent, it keeps coming, 
It's enduring. And so the context here is on the supremacy of Jesus' love for you and me. But in the process of explaining that, he gets into something else that's a secondary but very interesting conversation. He lays something out for us that's really important regarding goodness. Because in this passage, he mentions two different types of Christians, two different types of Christ followers, and this distinction is really powerful and important. In verse 7, we see Paul laying out for us the first type of Christian. They are the righteous. This distinction here is the contrast between the righteous man and then later in verse 7, the good man. It's a contrast between the righteous woman and the good woman. The first group of people Paul talks about are the righteous. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, man or woman. This is the word chaos, and it speaks of this whole idea of, of being justified by God, that when we accept Christ into our lives, when we are forgiven our, of our sins, we are justified, we are declared righteous by God, that we are right with him. We are right in re right relationship with him, and we'll spend forever with him. We are now part of his family. And this righteousness that Paul is talking about is, is someone who lives a moral and upright life. They show exceptional character. That's what a righteous person is in this context. And this is vitally important. This is exactly what God has in mind for you and for me. And so this person who lives out the chaos is someone um, who won't lie to you. This is a person who isn't going to steal from you. This is a person that's not going to undermine you. They're not going to be talking behind your back or gossiping about you. Um, they're not going to cheat on you. They're not going to hurt you because they've made a determination that they're going to be a righteous person. They're the straight shooter. They're one that follows the rules. They're the person that moves in as a neighbor, and they move in, and you're like, man, I'm glad that... They're my neighbor. I mean, we want a good neighbor, don't you? I mean, you're, you want this neighbor, and you're glad they're there because you know they're not going to go in your shed and, like, steal your lawnmower when you're not looking or peek in your windows and, like, get, get super creepy. No, they're good neighbors. You're glad that they're there. But it's interesting here that these people are righteous. They follow God to the T, but it says that, they, that it is unlikely that someone would die for them, that someone would uh, make the ultimate sacrifice for such a person because although they are respected, they don't have the same level of affection because there's a legalism to it too. There's a bent to them that kind of distances them from others. There is, a, however, another group of people besides the righteous. These are what Paul calls those who are good. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. This is where we get the word agathos again. And it's not merely one who obediently follows God. Uh, of course, that is the core to faith as well. These are people also of high character, but they are people who take their faith to the next level. They are truly good people. 
big-hearted people. They are generous people. They are open-handedly, open-handed people. They are, are people who actively spread goodwill. When they're talking about you behind your back, they're talking about the good things in you. They're the ones that are spreading goodwill about others. They have active concern for other people. And what, we're, what Paul is inferring here, and I think it is important, is that a Christian can be morally upright but not demonstrate the grace of goodness. It's entirely possible to be a very morally upright person, but not be a generous person and not demonstrate the grace of goodness, not be very juicy with this fruit of the Spirit. It turns out that goodness really is next-level faith. It's where God wants, us, wants to take us. It, it reminds us that living an exemplary life is huge. God wants to change us. Our lives will get better when we allow God's word to be the playbook guiding our relationships, guiding our mindset, guiding our attitudes. If we're doing that and we're following that and we're obedient to that, your life will get better. Your marriage will get better. You'll have a better sense of peace in your life. God will open up a career path for you that will make sense and all these things will come into play that God will bless you in this life when we take his word seriously and we're obedient to it good things begin to happen. Not that it's easy, but you will be blessed. But God wants us to go further than just living an exemplary life or a moral life. He wants us to go beyond that, to be good, to take a step beyond obeying God in our personal life and to be generous. Because in the end, what really gets, peop gets people's attention and what really brings in their affection is goodness not just morality, radical generosity, not just being a godly person. Now, on the surface, goodness, well, that seems easy. Because, I mean, don't we want to be good? Like, especially if we know the Lord, right? We're like, yeah, I think good is good. Like, good's good. Yeah, great. Let's be good. Let's be good people. We want that as Christ followers. We've accepted the Lord into our lives and, and we want to be positive. We'd like to sow positive seeds. I, I, I would like that to happen. And yet at this, as we begin to unpack all this, we realize that goodness is very, very difficult. There's a very high price to being good and demonstrating goodness and living a generous life. It's very challenging to live this way because we tend to put limits on it. We put a ceiling on it. We only take goodness so far, but Jesus comes along and says, actually, I want to blow up the box you've put this in and expand your horizon to take your faith to the next level. So what exactly then is goodness? Goodness is generosity of spirit, a willingness to forgive, not hold grudges, turn from gossip, and to bless other people, to bless other people, even those who are difficult. So it's generosity of spirit. There's a willingness to, to forgive, to not hold bitterness or resentments or carry grudges, to not turn to gossip, talking behind people's back, undermining, looking for the dirt in other people's lives, and even a willingness to bless other people, and not just our friends, 
not just our buddies, not just the people who are good to us, but even to bless the difficult people who come across our path. There, we really get a sense of this when we get into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And the verse I'm about to read to you, I can almost guarantee is not the one that you've printed out very neatly and placed with a refrigerator magnet on your fridge. Okay, this is not that one. Okay, you got other ones that, that you have there, but I'm pretty sure you didn't get a little crochet like uh, of, of this verse and put it in a little plaque on your wall. I'd be surprised, maybe you have, but I think you got other ones in mind besides this one. But this is powerful, and it's something Jesus set, tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. He says this, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Whoa. What? Really? You're right, it's not on the fridge. We look at this, and I think it's always important for us to set the, the context within the letter that's written. I, do, I like to do that. I think that's very important to understand Scripture. But also the theological structure and context as well. And I think this is a passage uh, within the New Testament that is interpreted a lot of different ways over the years. Some people use this passage to teach uh, forms of pacifism, which say that violence or warfare are always wrong, even in the defense of a nation. Um, nations shouldn't fight with one another, that, that they should sit down and peacefully resolve their problems. And if they try and they're unable to, well, then that's simply the best that they could do. Some even take this further and say that we should not have any police, that police uh, should not be uh, part of the mix, that if we have problems in society, we should sit down and we should resolve these things by talking it out. Uh, but this, of course, raises a ton of questions. Like, for example, during World War II, had the Allied forces, had the United States not resisted Germany and Japan, well, had we not stood up against Axis forces, what would have happened? What would the world be like today? Uh, I like watching different Netflix shows, so I may, maybe you've got your shows and and if you have a good one, let me know, because I'm trying to find good shows all the time. But there was a show out a few years ago called A Man in the High Castle. And I don't know if you saw that, but that was about this very thing uh, that it, the premise of the, of the, of the show was uh, that we lost the war, Japan, and Germany won, and they split us in half. And as you kind of saw the show, as it saw it play out, you realize it it didn't go that well. It was horrendous. There's been a big defund, defund the police movement today. Just a horrible idea on the front end, and it's proven to be a catastrophic thing that now we've got many cities today with uh, lots of crime, uh, violence is growing. There are even uh, major 
uh, retailers that are pulling out of certain cities because shoplifting is acceptable. Guy, people walking in with big bags taking stuff from Walgreens because like I could just take stuff. And it's like, wow, I don't know if to fund the police is actually uh, going to work. Well, yeah, we could have told you that on the front end. But we could say a whole lot more about all of this. But it turns out that things don't go well when society does not uphold laws and protect its citizens. Things just don't go well. The world don't go well. Nations will not thrive without the ability to do, as Paul says, wield the sword, that there has to be the ability to do this to protect its citizens. But this leaves us with a question. What in the world do we do with what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 when he says, do not resist the evil person. The key starting point for understanding the Sermon on the Mount is the distinction that is made in Scripture between nations and individuals. The duty of the state is different from the duty that individuals hold. Uh, we see that Jesus here is not a presenting an ethic to be applied broadly to the state, but he's applying an ethic. He's teaching an ethic that is directly related to the disciples and their one-on-one -on -one relationships. This is a one-on-one -on -one individual ethic. And this ethic is hard. This ethic needs explanation. This ethic requires a supernatural kind of power to pull it off. It's immensely countercultural. Jesus begins by confronting the common thinking of the day. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Here, uh, Jesus is referencing the Old Testament law called lex talionis. It's called the law of exact retribution. It's a principle that was put in place to ensure that justice would happen, that if something goes wrong, there must be justice, but it also was to ensure that the punishment fit the crime. So in other words, if you did something wrong and you hurt somebody, you know, the justice would be equal. It's not like, hey, you did this to me, so I'm going to get you that way and this way and this way. Pile, 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 pile on. That justice was not equitable to the offense. This law was designed to make sure it was equitable, that the punishment fit the crime. It was designed to prevent family feuds, uh, where we have groups of people going at it, where personal vendettas are pursued, people chasing other people down, angry family members with clubs running through the streets looking for other people, and then their family comes out, and you got warfare going on. The Old Testament, Lex Talionis, was designed to avoid all that. In fact, it took justice out of the realm of personal relationships and brought it to the law and to the courts. If you've got something going on, the law and the courts, they'll take care of it. But this idea of exact retribution still played a role. You poke me in the eye, I'm going to poke you in the eye right back. In Jesus' day, this law was still taught by the Pharisees. This was the common religious and societal thinking. And so when I mentioned before about how it's really great to have a good neighbor, if you lived in the first century, you'd be like, if a Pharisee moved in next to you, you'd be like, this is a good day. This is a good day because they wouldn't go in your shed and take your weed whacker. You know, they're, they're not going to steal your stuff. Their, their, their dog is not going to pee on your lawn when you just spent all this time trying to get it green. 
you know? They're going to be good neighbors. They're not going to peek in your windows and do something creepy. No, uh, they're good neighbors, but here's the deal. If you do anything to cross them, watch out. Watch out. If you do something to screw with them or you get your fence a little bit close, too close to the border and you didn't follow the rules, man, they are going to go ballistic on you. If you do anything against them or they pursue, perceive any slander or insult, all bets are off because they kept the lex talionis and they extended this principle to retaliation. Every individual would pursue personal, spiritual, vigilante justice to show them how angry God really was. Now, it's ironic that they live this way because the Old Testament law for, forbid personal vendettas. But they, the Pharisees, took the teaching that said it, justice is found in the law courts and put it back on the person. Somebody screws with you, make them pay. Go after them. They're never off the hook. You must seek personal revenge. And this is where Jesus comes along and says, actually, no. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth is for a tooth. But I say, do not resist the evil person. John Stott, a, a very prominent theologian, says this. Jesus is not forbidding the administration of justice, but rather forbidding us taking the law into our own hands. In other words, justice is to be served and should be served in the courts. But we as Christ followers on a one-to-one -one basis are to respond differently to offense. We are to respond differently to insults. We are to respond differently to times when we're hurt or when people put demands on us. And we are to respond by being good, generous in spirit. He says this, uh, four different ways he, he pay, plays this out with illustrations of this generosity of spirit. I mean, first he says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Again, this is not saying evil goes unchecked, but that we should not seek private retaliation. And then he gives four illustrations of how this plays out. And we don't have time to look at all of them, but I want to look at two. The first one is this, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. So now you know where I'm going with a volunteer, right? Do we have a volunteer, somebody that wants to come up? Uh, in the first service, I had a backup plan uh, for somebody to come when everybody was freaked out at the idea of standing in front of people. Uh, but now I have no backup plan, so we're going to be here for a while. Somebody? Come on, come on, Craig. You can stand over here. Okay, introduce yourself to everybody. I'm Craig. Craig, okay, Craig. All right, so thank you, Craig, for doing this here. And uh, I think the first thing I want us to see here is that when Jesus is talking about uh, if, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The first thing that Jesus is not saying is this. He's not saying if somebody strikes you, Okay, so if somebody strikes you, so Craig is here, if somebody strikes you, so I could strike Craig, I, a roundhouse right, I would be a very bad idea, but it's a roundhouse right, I mean, I could strike Craig that way, or a straight left, straight left, 
I could do that. Or I watch UFC, you could do like a, a liver kick. <laughs> and that, it's, that's also a very, very bad idea. But there's all different ways that you could strike a person, but Jesus isn't talking about just a physical confrontation. He's talking about a very specific type of attack that comes off with a very specific type of meaning. Most people are right-handed. So for me, as a right-handed person, to strike Craig on the right cheek would be very difficult. I would, how would I do that? I'd like, like, oh yeah, turn right there. Okay, if you would, could you turn? Okay. Okay, I could do, but he's not going to do that because he's going to be facing me square. He's going to be facing me square. And so, oh no, we're going to get to that in a minute. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But So it'd be very difficult for me to hit Craig on his right cheek as a right-handed person, but Jesus isn't talking about me hitting him in that way. Jesus is describing a backhand slap with my right hand. He's describing a backhand slap. And this was very important because it was the ultimate insult in the first century. In fact, throughout history, it was an insult as well. It was a way of absolutely scorning and shaming and disparaging somebody. To give them the backhand slap on the right cheek was basically to dehumanize them. It was the ultimate mockery of their life. And it was basically saying, I have contempt for you. In fact, the insult was so grave in the first century and throughout history that if you look back in time in Eastern, the Eastern and Near Eastern world, even to this day, if I were to do that to Craig in certain societies today, I could incur a fine because you don't do that. The government would fine you for doing that very thing. So Jesus is saying here that you've incurred now the ultimate insult. And what happens when you get insulted, how do you tend to respond? Well, you respond by doing the same thing back. So this is your chance now. It's fun to hit the pastor. So, so anyway, what happens then? And we can embellish this a little bit. So I insult you. And what do you do to me? Boom. And I reject you. Boom. And what do you do to me? Boom. And I'm angry at you. Boom. And what do you do to me? Do the same thing. I'm not going to smile when he starts hitting me. But, you know, I cancel you. Boom. And what do you do to me? You cancel me. And so I withdraw from you and I reject you and your humanity. What do you do to me? You reject me and my humanity. All of a sudden, we've got this cycle going on and Jesus is saying, no. Somebody has to be big enough to break this cycle of self-destruction. And so Jesus is saying that what you're to do is to take that insult and then turn the other cheek and take it again. The idea there is that we are breaking the cycle that's self-destructive. We're breaking a cycle that dehumanizes and never leads to a fair outcome. It never leads to the right type of outcome. Payback and all these things do not make life better. Jesus says, you need to take it. So let's give... Craig, I've had here. Thank you, man. So we get into these slapping matches. We get into these personal battles. And things don't get better. Jesus is saying we are to stop that cycle. In fact, that's exactly what he tells us here. In for, uh, what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. He says, finally, all of you, 
Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. This is what God designed us to be. This is how God designed us to live in our relationships, our families, and in our church, that we are to be a people who live in harmony. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome in a world that's so divided if we could do that? Like the world's so divided because everybody's advocating for self, everybody's getting enraged, everybody's insulted, everybody's upset about something. No, actually God's people, an earmark of God's presence among his people is harmony, harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. This is a sign of God's presence among his people that we actually put ourselves in the other person's shoes. We're not just advocating for self or seeing it through our lens. We're like, maybe they're that way because of this or maybe there's a benefit of a doubt or maybe it's not as dark as everybody's saying. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Wouldn't that be amazing if we could do that? Love as brothers, as sisters, to put the other's interests ahead of our own. To be compassionate to be compassionate, to be patient with others. And then it says, to be humble. Wouldn't that be awesome if we could actually be humble? That it's not about my pride, me getting my way, me putting in your, you in your place, me, me pushing you down, kicking you while you're down. What if we were actually like humble? This is what God wants to do among his people and in our lives. But what follows next is fascinating because it says then, well, that's the way I want it to be, but do not repay evil for evil. In other words, that commitment is going to get tested. It's going to get tested. That call to harmony and sympathy is going to get tested because evil will lurk. It will look for opportunities to divide and separate. But don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult, but with blessing in other words, not only am I breaking the cycle and not slapping back, but I'm actually going to look for opportunities to sow good seed into their life. Why would I do that? Well, because I'm good. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit, goodness, is in me. And then I'll seek the good not only of my friend, but even those who are my enemies. The Pharisees taught, love your friends, hate your enemies. Jesus said, that's a path to destruction. And he goes on, why would we live this way? Like, this is, this is too much. This is too much to ask. Well, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. In other words, your life now, if you love it, you'll actually break that cycle of bitterness, that cycle of resentment, that cycle of anger, that cycle of rage. Someone has to be big enough to do that, and that's what you're called to do, and I'm called to do. And life will get better. If you love life, break that cycle. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. And then it goes on, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Make no mistake, God sees the insults. He knows what you're going through. He knows what really tempts you to bitterness and resentment. He sees it. His eyes are on you because you're righteous. His ears are attentive to your prayers, and the face of the Lord is, is against those who do evil. In other words, we don't have to pursue spiritual vigilante justice against people. 
Because in the end, God sees it all. He knows it all. There'll be a reckoning. He will take care of those things. And we don't have to. It's his bidding to do it. What this means is we're not to be known as someone who always has a smart retort. We're not to be known as someone who breathes fire on social media. We're not to be known as someone who's so sensitive and worried that we have to tell everybody every time we feel offended, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you. We're just so inclined to tell everybody about how we hurt and our displeasure about things. We're not to be known as someone who seeks revenge or holds grudges, carries bitterness, who coalesces a crowd about, against someone else because, well, we don't like them very much. In fact, this is a call sometimes to take that slap and not return it, to take that insult and respond with goodness and generosity because we turn from evil knowing God's going to take care of this. And in the end, good will prevail. It keeps us from foolish family feuds and useless, joy-sapping, peace-stealing personal vendettas your life will not be better pursuing a personal vendetta. It keeps us away from revenge that not only burns others, but burns our life down at the same time. All of this is the old eye for an eye way. No, we're generous in spirit. We're quick to forgive. We're quick to be patient. We're quick to be generous. We're quick to be humble. And when we're offended and insulted, we actually seek the good of the one who did it to us. We are way more, way more than just some moral person or exemplary person in our conduct. No, God calls us to a higher level of faith. He calls us to be good. But the truth is, very few people get there. We look at our culture today and very few people are generous in spirit forgiving and giving in this way. In fact, I was thinking about who might be an example among politicians or leaders in society today. It's hard to come up with anybody. Everybody's canceling. Everybody's enraged. Everybody's fighting. Uh, you get, where do you go? You go to Gandhi. Where do you go? Is there anybody who lives out the Christian value and virtue? To me, probably the best example I could find was Martin Luther King. And it's really unfortunate that we have to go back so far to find him. But here was a man who demonstrated in so many ways generosity of spirit, forgiving others when he was hurt in so many different ways. Dr. Benjamin Mays uh, was a mentor to Martin Luther King. And when Martin Luther King was killed uh, and, and at his funeral, Benjamin Mays spoke these words about King. He said, if any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, malicious, maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him, and yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind, and he went up and down the length and breadth of this world preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. 
And so the question is, where are the Martin Luther Kings of the day? Where are they? Will they stand up? We can't find them because everybody's enraged, fighting, battling, trading slaps, insult for insult. We need people like him to step up who hold strong values as he needed to and as our culture needed to, but who did not slip into anger and hatred, did not slip into uh, total uh, annihilation of others when people stood against him. We need people like him. And I'm going to say something right now that you're not going to like because when I thought about it, I don't like it. But it's 100% true. And here it is that, that God sometimes, and I'm convinced of this, that some, God sometimes allows and even sends difficult people into our lives to teach us goodness. That God sometimes allows and even sends difficult people and challenging circumstances into our lives to teach us this fruit, the fruit of goodness. And so sometimes we look at this situation and we say, well, I think, man, this difficult person in my life is a curse. And God says, no, I've sent them as a blessing. We think uh, this difficult person is an obstacle to the life that I really want. And God's saying, no, it's an opportunity to become all you could be. And sometimes we look at this person and say, they're a problem. And God says, no, actually, if you respond in a Christ-like way, it's going to be a promotion for you because you're going to respond in a way that honors me. And I will reward you for doing the countercultural thing, for doing the difficult thing, for sowing seeds of peace and breaking the needless, empty cycle of tit for tat, insult for insult, rage for rage. No, sometimes we might be fighting against the, the difficult person in our life and find ourselves actually fighting against God who sent them for our good to teach us goodness, forgiveness, generosity of spirit. Let me just say one more thing about verse 41. It says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is saying that once you start working at this, this is tough. This is hard. Once you start working at it and you get tested and you will, you got to keep persevering. Your commitment to generosity is going to get tested. In this passage, it's referencing something very specific that could happen. It happens when, say, you and your family are out in the marketplace. Mom, dad, a couple kids, you're out shopping, right? You're out in the marketplace and you're shopping and you're like having a day with your family. And this Roman soldier comes along and he's got this huge backpack on and he's got this duffel bag and he, he's carrying this stuff. And, and what they could do is they could point to you, dad, and say, I want you to come over here right near, now and carry my stuff. I'm demanding you be my porter. And that dad would have to leave his family, leave his wife. You know, maybe they're shopping for, I don't know, what, tunics or whatever you're shopping for. I don't know what, what they're shopping for. 
But that dad would have to because all the power of Rome stood behind that request. This was law. And he would have to pick up that backpack and maybe the duffel bag and it said that he needs to walk 100 paces as a porter for this Roman soldier, interrupting his whole life. And in fact, this act was greatly hated. I mean, wouldn't you hate that? Somebody comes along and says, you're going to carry this 100 paces? That could be a quarter of a mile. It's like, see you later, I got to go carry this duffel bag. It's like, what? 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 Yeah, I have to do it. It was something that the Jews fiercely resented. The practice was hated when they were commandeered for carrying such a load. And Jesus says something here that's a big time curveball. He says, I know you hate this. I know you think this is incredibly unfair. I, I know you don't think this is, this is right and it makes you angry, but after you've carried it 100 paces, actually, I'd like you to carry it 1,000 more. What? But I thought I was supposed to resent the imposition. It's a degrading moment. It's not convenient. But this is what we learn here, that our faith is a go-the-extra-mile kind of faith. We don't show generosity just for a moment and then throw in the towel. We don't just give up and put a limit on it because we're done with it. No, actually, we have a go-the-extra-mile type of faith. Sometimes we set the limits way, way too quickly. I think we learn here that we're to resist generosity fatigue, where we say we've done enough giving, we've done enough forgiving. It's kind of this moment where you come to the point and say, I've done enough being patient with this person. I've done enough forgiving this person. I'm done forgiving them. I'm, it's not worth it. I'm done being generous and kind to this person. I, I'm, I'm done being a giver in this life. I've given enough. I've, I've served enough. I've given enough to other people's needs. I've given enough financially to the church. I've served the church enough. I've served them plenty, and, and now it's time to move on. I'm, I'm done. I've carried my load for a thousand paces, and Jesus comes along and says, actually, I want you to pick up that load and carry it a thousand more. We need to resist generosity fatigue and go the extra mile. So let me bring this full circle. Let me bring this full circle back to a story that I'm sure you're familiar with. It's the story of Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary, you'll remember, were pledged to be married. They were engaged. And uh, one day it became quite apparent that Mary was pregnant, and Joseph and Mary never had sex together. They'd never been intimate. They'd never been involved. They were engaged, and they were separate. They lived separately, but she was pregnant, and you, can you imagine all the thoughts that must have gone through Joseph's mind? Imagine the emotions that raged within him, but do you remember how he responded to this act of deep personal betrayal, that she would be with another guy. How he responded to something that was excruciatingly painful, that led to the destruction and ruin of his life now, and his future was, was a, just in a shambles. And the shame was everywhere. How would you respond 
to this kind of betrayal. Joseph lived in an eye for an eye world. And he could have easily had great justification to say, I'm going to shun her. I'm going to hate her. I'm going to ruin her. I'm going to make her pay for what she's done to me. And in fact, I just might get a group of people who could pick up some stones and surround her and let her really have it and pay the ultimate price for the shame that she caused me and my family. He could have been justified in all that. Even the Pharisees would have likely picked up a stone or two. But he didn't do any of those things. He didn't even respond to the insult with an insult. It says here instead that because Joseph was a righteous man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. This was his response here we see that Joseph was a righteous man. In that culture, he could not marry her. He could not continue on forward with a relationship with her. He was righteous, but he was also good and would not subject her to public disgrace, even though she had done exactly that to him. Joseph was both righteous and good. How about you? Are you both righteous, growing in godly character, and also good, generous, radically forgiving, and radically giving? That's the juicy fruit that God wants to develop deep within your spirit, deep within your soul. Let's pray.